Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church, and yes, welcome back to winter. Uh, as Tanya said, sorry about that, but this is what we got. Um, so no matter how you're here, why you're here, maybe you got dragged in here with somebody else. They told you you had to come, or maybe you, you showed up here because you felt like God needed you to be here, and you're like, I don't know why I'm here, but I felt like I'm supposed to be here. Or maybe you're not even in the room, and you're joining us online, or whatever the case is. Either way, no matter what it is, thank you for joining us, for being here and, and jumping in with us. So we are in the midst of a series very simply called Words. What we're doing is every single week we are taking a look, a deeper look, at one word and one word only. And what we're doing is we're kind of choosing words. We took a look at a lot of different words, uh, and we wrestled with this quite a bit, but these are words that we hear quite a bit usually, but we don't really think about as deeply as often as maybe we should. And so these are words that, they're not going to be words that you're like, oh, I've never heard that word. These are words that you've heard, but maybe you've never thought about what they mean or how deep a meaning it has for you and your walk with God and your life. And so uh, today's word is no different than that. It is a word that you've heard a lot, especially if you've been around church for any length of time. Uh, When you're in church, when you're reading God's word, when you're reading the Bible, when you're digging into any of those things, you're going to see this word, you're going to hear this word a lot, but it's not a word that maybe we think about all that often. Today's word is faith. Faith. So when you think about faith, what we're going to do is we're going to jump in. I want to just kind of introduce the story right out of the gate here because we're going to talk about faith, but I want to use an Old Testament story to do that. So the story today is about three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now as soon as I say that, some of you are like, oh yeah. Some of you, you're like, I've heard that story. I love that story. Maybe you hate that story. I don't know what it is. But a lot of you have heard that story. And some of you are like, those are just three really weird names. For those of you that might be looking forward to, you know, naming a child or something like that, I've got three good ones for you today. Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, right? But some of you in here, maybe you've never heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the Old Testament. So we're going to dig into this, and I'm actually not going to give you the entire story. I'm going to give you just kind of a piece of it uh, here today. But let me kind of set up the context for you. Um, So the context is this. The Babylonian Empire in this time of history has conquered the Israelites. They came in, they conquered them, militarily speaking, and then they forced most of their population, most of their people, to leave Israel and go live in exile in the Babylonian Empire. And so most of the population of the Israelites, the Hebrew people, are living in exile, forced to live in exile in the Babylonian Empire. Now, the Babylonian Empire is ruled by a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. Again, if you're looking for names, Nebuchadnezzar's one for you, right? But he's, they're ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar, one time, one season of his reign, he decides that he wants to build this amazing, huge, golden statue. And he wants all of his people in the empire to worship this statue. 
Okay, so that's the context. And so once he finishes this massive statue, he decides that the best way to celebrate this and to worship this statue is to gather everybody he can on the same plane, this open air area where he's built this big statue. And he's get all, he gets all these instruments together, right? Electric guitars, drums. I'm just kidding, he didn't do that. We're talking flute and harp and the, the zither and all, the, all these kind of weird instruments that you've never heard of. And he brings them all together and he says, okay, here's the decree in the entire empire. When the musicians start to play these certain music, these certain songs, everybody is required to bow down and worship this golden image that we have created. Now, there's a problem, isn't there? And a lot of you that know the story already know the problem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are Hebrews. They're Israelites. They have faith in the one true God of the universe. They don't worship idols. They're not allowed to. God said, this is not something that you're allowed to do. You cannot worship other gods. So they know they can't do this. But here they are. And by the way, just a little side note, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not just Hebrews in the Babylonian Empire. They're such great leaders that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has raised them to leadership positions over his empire. So they're Hebrews that serve directly under the king, but now they've been forced by this decree to have to bow down to the statue, but they know they can't. So we're going to pick up the story where everybody's in the plane, they're in this open area, the statue's there, the music starts playing, right, whatever they're doing, the flutes are going, all this stuff, and they start playing the music, and now everybody starts to bow down. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't. Out of the entire empire, everybody that's there, they're the only ones that are still standing. And the king finds out, and of course he gets pretty mad. So we're going to pick up the story at that moment, where he orders Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to appear before him. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to start with verse 13. Then King Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. He just found out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down. In order that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? And by the way, he doesn't give him a chance to answer because I don't think he wants to know the answer. And so this is what he says next. There's there's no chance for a response here. He says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Now, I want to pause there for a moment before we read the next section because we have to understand that the king has a lot staked on this day, doesn't he? He has spent, we don't know how long it took to build this statue, but the statue, according to the Bible, was 90 feet tall. Okay, just just to put this into perspective, to understand how much the king has put into this day, this is a big day. He has a lot staked on this, and to have three guys to defy his decree on the very first day is a really big problem, because he's put a lot into this. Put this in perspective, if the statue is standing here, just to put it in perspective, 90 feet is about three school buses stacked end to end straight up. Just imagine that. In other words, if the statue was standing right here in front of me on the gym floor, his head would go through the skylights, through the roof, 
of this building. If you just look up, look at how tall that thing would have been. This is not a small statue. It's huge. The king has staked a lot on this, and these three guys are defying his order. This is a problem for him. And so he's got to make an example of them. And so he has said, now, if you don't bow down when the music plays, then I'm going to throw you into this big blazing furnace that we have to melt uh, metal, smelt, you know, different things, all this. They have this massive furnace that they use for that. But he said, I'm going to throw you into there. You're going to be dead. So the question that I have is, how do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to the king in the face of mortal danger? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's go to the very next verse, verse 16. The king has just been done talking and said, if you don't, you're going to be thrown into the blazing furnace. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. At least they use your majesty. They're trying to be respectful. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. That would be a mic drop moment. Nobody ever talks to the king that way. They just said, essentially, (laughs) nope. You can try to guess, do whatever you want. We will never do it. That's essentially what they just said to the king in front of everybody that's gathered there. Well, the king is obviously going to have a problem with this. Now, I want, what I want to do is I would love to go into this. Some of you want me to go into the rest of the story right now. You're like, oh, man, the rest of the story gets even better. That's true. We're not going to talk about it here today. Oh, so sorry. All right. But what I do want to focus on today is I want to focus on their response. Because the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is really one of the most powerful pieces of this story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they demonstrated incredible faith. And so I want to talk about the three things that we learn about faith from these three Hebrew guys. So what's the first thing we learn? Well, the first thing that we learn from their response is very simply this. We learn what faith is. We get the definition, an example of faith. We learn what faith is. What is faith? Well, let's talk about it. So if you look at the New Testament, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but the New Testament was written in Greek. And so if you look at all the times that the word faith appears in the New Testament, and by the way, it appears a lot of times. Right? I didn't look up how many times, but it is a whole lot. The word faith comes up again and again and again and again in the New Testament. And so it was originally written in Greek, and so the question becomes, the word faith, what Greek word do we translate to the word English word faith? That's important, because we need to know what we're actually talking about. So if you look at the original Greek word that we translate into the word faith, it literally translates to mean confidence, trust conviction, confidence, trust, and conviction. If you look up the original Greek word, that's what faith means. It's 
confidence. Conviction that what you believe is really absolutely true and you can stake your life on it. Faith. Confidence. Trust. And conviction. In fact, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, tells us this exact same thing. He actually defines faith for us. You don't have to look up the Greek word because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 tells us this. Let me read it for you. It says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance, or you could say conviction, trust about what we do not see, about what you can't measure, about what you can't prove definitively in a science lab. It is confidence, trust in what you believe in. Now, clearly, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had this before the king, didn't they? If they did not have confidence, they're going to walk up, and they're probably going to, like, when they're in front of that, and he says, no, seriously, the furnace, it's being heated right now. You're going in there if you don't bow down. Most people... Unless they have the strength of faith that these guys did, they're probably just going to bow down. They're going to acquiesce really quick so they can get out of there. But not these three guys. Why? Did they look forward to dying? I don't think so. Did they want to live? Absolutely. But what was the difference? The difference was confidence. They trusted God implicitly. And completely, even in the face of the most powerful person on the planet in that part of the world. That that person can do anything he wants to them. And yet, they have confidence. Now, the truth is, confidence is everything when you approach things in life, isn't it? Isn't confidence just about everything? So let me kind of, uh, let's dig into this for a minute, right? Let me me illustrate this. So uh, I want you to participate here this morning. So how many of you, if I were to bring in a bicycle or or several bicycles, and and I brought them out here, and I said, hey, I want you guys just to hop on the bicycle, and I want you to just take a, you know, take a ride around the block, around Village Park back here, over the bridges, all kind of stuff. How many of you, by raising your hand, you would have the confidence to say you could ride the bicycle, and you could do it pretty well? How many of you would have the confidence to be able to do that? All right, the vast majority of you in here, pretty much everybody. All right, good. Let me ask you this. How many of you would have the exact, and I want you to raise your hand if this is true for you, how many of you would have the exact same confidence if right now I called your name and I asked you to come up here on stage and share for three to five to ten minutes of your faith journey with God in front of everybody else? How many of you would have the same level of confidence? All right, there's seven of you, eight maybe. Some of you are gaining confidence. Okay, good. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I may, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I saw a lot of creeping hands. Right? Why is the confidence less? Because there's less confidence there. Right? And so the, what, if I throw a bike and say, hey, just ride a bike, you're going to be like, yeah, I got that. I know how to do that. But if I come and I ask you to come up here and share your faith, that is scary business. Isn't it? I get that. You're, not, you're, you're in the majority, not in the minority there, if you're scared of that. That's, that's, that's totally okay. I get it. But do you see how confidence changes everything of what you're willing to do? It changes everything. 
And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were willing to say to the king, you know what, king? We don't have to protect ourselves against you. We've got God. (laughs) Who says that? Right? Who says that to the king who has absolute power over their life? They do because they have incredible confidence, faith, conviction that God has their back. And no matter what they need to do, as long as they're doing what God wants them to do, they're good. That's powerful. That's faith. Trust, conviction, and confidence. So that's the first thing that we learn from them. But then the second thing that we learn from them about faith is a more difficult one. It's one that we don't like to talk about. It's one that honestly makes us a little bit angry with God at times. It's one that I've had to wrestle with this last year. This next thing, this next thing that we learn about faith from these guys is a more difficult thing for us as human beings to wrestle with. And what is the second thing that we learn? We learn that faith cannot be tied to outcome. Some of you are thinking about it for a moment. What we learn from these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is that faith cannot be tied to the outcome. In other words, if I were to say it a very a more simple way, faith cannot be, I trust that God's going to do what I want Him to do in the way that I want Him to do it and in the timing that I'm going to ask Him to do it. I told you it was harder. But we learn that. Let's go back to their response. They actually say this out loud. Some of you may be caught it the first time, but let's read it just to make sure we catch it this second time. Going back to that same response, they say this. Remember, they're speaking to the king. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Notice at that moment they didn't say he's going to save us. They say he's able to. We're not saying he is, but he's able to. But then... Apparently, their creeping hands were going as well. Uh, They're gaining confidence because then what do they say next? He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But then what do they say then? What's the next set of, what are the next few words? But if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Did you catch what they just said there? And that's a, big, that's a big deal. What they said is, King, here's the deal. We trust that God can save us. In fact, we believe God's going to save us. But we also know he might not. And we're still okay. And we're still going to trust God, even if he doesn't do what we want him to do. That's a hard aspect of faith, isn't it? Faith is not just trusting that God is going to do what you want Him to do. Faith is also having the confidence, the conviction, the trust that God is good and that He's got your back even when He doesn't do the things that you think is perfect and right. I don't know about you, but I walked through that a lot this last year. I would not have chosen most of the things that happened last year. Not in a million years. My faith has to be trust and confidence that God is good and that he knows way better than I do. And I know he does. I know he does. 
So when Laura and I first moved to Dane County, um, we moved here, a lot of you know this, to start Northridge Church. That's why we moved here. That was our reason for moving to Dane County. We didn't know it was going to be Wanakee at the time. We didn't know the name of the church. We didn't, we didn't, know, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> Let's be honest. No, no joke. I had never led or started a church before. I, so we, we truly did not know what we were doing. But we did know this one thing very completely, 100% absolute, sure, and clear. We were to move to Dane County and plant a church, start a new church. We knew that. No doubt about it. And so when we moved here, one of the aspects that we knew, one of the deals was I was going to have to get a job because there was no church. There was no sister church. There was no like church sending money and people and all kind of stuff. We had a denomination helping to support us in the meantime until we got our feet under us. But we didn't have a church that was like had people and all kind of stuff. It was just Laura and I and our two kids at the time. We have three now. And, and this guy named Craig Raymond. Some of you have met Craig Raymond. A lot of you know Craig Raymond, right? But he came to help us. So we moved here. The deal was I had to get a job to support the family until the church got going. And so we took this, we, we left, honestly, what, I, what was an amazing job, really secure, financially great at another church in North Dakota. Uh, we left that job because we knew that God was asking us to take this risk. And so here's the thing. We, we make this move. We turn this thing. I could tell you all the different stories of how God miraculously paved the way for us to get here. So we arrive here, and you would think that since we answered God's call, that as soon as I walk in, there's a job waiting, it pays this much, and it's flexible, and it's something that I already know how to do. Thank you, Lord. Six months it took to get a job. Half a year. I've shared this before at our church, but that was one of the lowest points of my life emotionally and mentally, because partly it was healthy because I should be doing something, and I felt that, but also unhealthy is that our culture ties our worth to our jobs. Hello, Americans. You tie your worth to your job. You shouldn't do that. Your worth is your identity in Christ. That's it. But we tie our worth to our jobs. This is how my worth is. If I can get this, if I can make this, if I uh, climb the ladder this way, that's my worth. I'm just telling you that worth will come out from under you at some point. Don't tie your worth to that. But I have that same problem and mentality myself. And so I felt worthless. I knew I wasn't worthless, but I felt worthless. And so here's the thing, though. It's what's interesting is at the end of that six months, in the midst of that six months, so six months went by, and by the way, this is not for lack of trying. I did online applications, I did in-person applications, I did resumes, I did interviews, I did all these things. Nothing was working. I could barely get my foot in the door. It was almost like God was saying, you don't, it's not time for you to have a job yet. That's almost what it felt like. It's like, I can't, I can't even get in front of a person. Anybody else who's tried out for jobs and gone for jobs, you probably get that, right? But what's cool is, miraculously, and very intentionally, and very specifically, I won't go into the story, we'd be, here for, we'd be here past lunch, but very miraculously and very intentionally, God led us, actually led my wife to somebody else's wife, who was connected to a guy that worked for a company that just started hiring 
for something that I have never done before, still don't understand to this day. No kidding, no joke, very true. I still don't understand exactly what I did. I know, I know what I did for the work. I just don't understand how it all fit. You understand? And so it led me to this perfect job on the south side of Madison, truly God-ordained. This company allowed me to be as flexible as I needed to be. They allowed me to squeeze 40 hours a week into four days, Monday through Thursday, so that I could spend Friday, Saturday, and Sunday pouring into the community and getting to know people and having coffee and planning and strategy and prayer and all the different things that go into starting a church. And so I had three days where I could do that, and the other four days I worked these 40 hours. I kind of squeezed them into 40, into four days. Beautiful, amazing situation. Friendships that I that are made at that company that I still have to this day. There's a there's a family here that are still highly involved and connected to Northridge. I became friends with him and 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 we got to know each other. We talked a lot while I was working on the things that I didn't understand. But he and I would talk in the shop all the time, and then he met this amazing gal named Rachel. And he talked to me about how amazing she was, and we had these deep conversations. And I said, you know what, I'll be praying for you. And, and then they got engaged, and I had the privilege and honor of officiating their wedding, and they got married, and they're still highly involved at Northridge today. I know that's one. It's not the only, but it's one of the main reasons why God led me to that company. No doubt. God knows better. We just can't always see it clearly. God can see it clearly, but we can't. A lot of people don't know this, but I have terrible eyesight. Really, really bad eyes. And so I wear contacts. That's why you can't tell that I have bad eyes, because I look normal. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, we knew. But, but if I were to pop out, I, I kid you not, if I were to pop out my contacts, I would be able to tell that there are people there. I would not be able to tell who you are. Not even close. In fact, even for me to Ben right here, there's no way I would be able to tell that's Ben. Even if Ben was standing almost arm's length from me, I still wouldn't probably be able to tell that it was him. That's how bad. My eyes are bad. I'm just saying. They're bad. Everything is blurry. So if I popped out my contacts, everything would be blurry. Now, does that mean that you guys don't exist? No. You still exist. I just can't see you clearly. Well, that's how, spiritually speaking, our vision is sometimes. We have to understand that we are looking like this as human beings. This is how much we see. We see our life. We see the lives around us. We kind of know what's going on in Ukraine a little bit. And we kind of know what's going on maybe in a couple other countries because they're in the news. But otherwise, this is our view because that's all the view we can have because we're human beings living our life here on earth. But you know what God's view is? God's view is clear, huge, big. He knows everything that's happened. He knows everything that's going to happen, everything that is happening, and everything in between. It's clear. God doesn't need contacts. I do, but God doesn't. And so we have to realize that faith is the confidence, the conviction, the trust that God is good, that God knows what's best, that God has his best for you, even when you're like, this doesn't seem to be working out. This doesn't seem to be right. This doesn't, certainly this is not God's plan. Faith is the confidence, the trust, that even if God doesn't save us from the furnace, that we're still going to trust him. 
And some of you know the story. You'd love for me to get into that part of the story. But just to give you the end of the story, just so you know, you can read this in Daniel chapter 3 sometime later today. But the, the rest of the story is the king, they don't bow down. And so the king has the furnace heated up multiple times hotter than it normally is. The soldiers that throw them in, they die because the furnace is so hot. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get tossed in the furnace. And then the king is amazed because he looks in and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking around in the furnace. It was a big furnace. But there's a fourth person in there. He says, didn't we throw three in there? Yeah. Well, there's four. We don't know if that was God, if that was Jesus, if it was an angel. The Bible doesn't tell us, but God was clearly there in the fire with them. There was another in the fire. Their faith, their confidence was there regardless of what God was going to do. But he did show up. It's an amazing story. I encourage you to read it. Daniel chapter 3. And by the way, on the other side of this, guess who starts to believe in their God? King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, I am way off my notes here, but that's an important point. Think about this. Your faith needs to be important because of you. But it is quite... No, it's not even possible. It is the fact that your faith can lead others to stronger faith for them. King Nebuchadnezzar was leading people astray, and after this, we don't know if he became a follower of Christ and you know, a true follower, but at least what he did is, okay, your God is real. No doubt about that. So I'm in. Your faith can and should lead other people to strengthen and deepen their faith. Trust and confidence. All right. So what's the third thing we learn? You're like, hey, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder this. This is just a random thought that I had. How many of you are just kind of sitting there thinking, man, I wonder how fast the pastor's going to get to that third point? Because he said there's three. So I, I kinda, I'm gauging how quickly I'm going to get out of here and get brunch. <laughs> I wonder that. Some, some of you weren't thinking that, but now you are, <laughs> right? So we're on point number three. We're getting there, right? We're getting there. All right, third thing that we learn about faith from their response. And this is going to be an obvious one. This is one we talk about here at Northridge all the time, but this is maybe uh, one of the most important aspects of faith. And we learn this from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faith must lead to action. Faith has to lead to living it, to action, to living it out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't waver. As soon as they knew that they were going to have to bow down to the statue, they had already made the decision, we're not bowing down. We're going to stand up to the king and probably we're going to have to go before the king because they're leaders in the Babylonian kingdom. They knew that they were going to have to take action. They were going to have to put up or shut up, and they weren't going to shut up, and so they were going to live their faith boldly, confidently, courageously, conviction, and they had to live their life that way. When it came to their very lives being threatened, they said, nope, we have confidence in God. We trust Him. Action has to follow faith. If I were to put it this way, your faith should cause you to live differently than without faith. 
Your faith should cause you to live different than you would if you didn't have faith. If you don't, what good is your faith? In fact, James chapter 2 says this. You probably figured I was going there. James chapter 2, let me read verses 14 through 20. Listen to what he says. This is one of the most powerful, most important passages that you will ever read because it talks about what your faith should do. Listen to what he says. James writes, he says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters? So he's, you know he's talking to followers of Christ when he says brothers and sisters. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Faith without action is useless useless. Useless. Faith and action have to go together. Otherwise, there's no point. That's what James is saying. It's not good enough to just believe in God. That's what he's saying. You have to live by action. You have to do something about it. You have to live differently. Because of your faith. So some of you may have heard about this guy. There's a guy named Dean Carnassus. And uh, Dean Carnassus is, I, I don't know, he, he, nobody would have known him until the story that I'm about to tell. But on his 30th birthday, Dean decided that how he wanted to spend his 30th birthday was to go out to the bar and get wasted with his friends. And so that's what he did. He went to the bar, and he got drunk. I mean drunk, drunk, sloshed drunk, right? Whatever you want to call it, whatever term we like to use in Wisconsin, he got hammered, okay? He was drunk, massively drunk, not like a little bit tipsy, drunk, drunk. And he was with his friends, and about 11 o'clock-ish, and again, this is according to Dean Carnassus. This is according, this is his story. And uh, again, around 11 o'clock-ish that night, he decided, what am I doing here on my 30th birthday? I've got to get out of here. And so he told his friends, I'm out, I'm leaving. And so he just left. He started walking out of the, out of the bar. And, uh, and as he was walking out of there, and I don't know where he went, where he ended up. I don't know if he ended up you know, somewhere else, whatever. But he walked out and he started, he talked about how for some reason he started to just contemplate his life. He started to really think deeply about his, his life and where it was and how things were going. And he realized that even though he had an amazing job making incredible money, he was married, he had a wife and all this stuff, he had the American dream. He was depressed, angry, bitter, and totally unhappy. And then the next thought that he had was, is this what I want in life? 
making as much money as I can and getting wasted on the weekends? That, that was his thought. He's like, is this all there is? Is this what, I'm, is this what I really want to do? And then the next thought that came, this is where the, the story turns weird. The next thought that he had was, I just need to start running. That was his next thought. So all these deep thoughts, like pondering his life, and the next thought that comes into his life, I need to start running. And so he started right then. It was probably midnight, maybe even one in the morning, because he's been contemplating for a while now. And so now it's the middle of the night, and he just starts running. I'm not, I don't mean you understand proverbially from his problems. I mean he physically starts jogging. And he just starts running and running and running. And he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. Pretty much he runs all night until he's absolutely spent. He's absolutely exhausted. And he finally gets to wherever he's at. And he calls his wife and tells her where he is. And she comes to pick him up. Now this is the crazy part. Understand that Dean up to that point, had not run for 15 years. Hadn't been running for 15 years. When his wife came to pick him up, they discovered that he had run for 30 miles that night. Put it in perspective, that's four miles longer than marathon. He hadn't run in 15 years. 30 miles he had run. So he gets home and he starts to, you know, he's obviously sobering up now by this point. And he realizes, I have a gift. I am really good at running. And I love it. And so, from that moment, from that day on, he starts running for the rest of his life. That's what he does full time. That's still what he does full time to this day. That was, I think, 15 years ago, something like that. And so Dean Carnassus becomes one of the most famous ultra-marathon long-distance runners the world has ever known. So let me just give you a few things of how this guy, how crazy this guy is. So Dean Carnassus is known, one of the things he's known for was one season he took 50 consecutive days, no break, 50 days in a row, he ran 50 marathons in all 50 states. Can you imagine? No breaks. One day after another, 50 days, 50 states, 50 marathons. Now, he obviously can't run in actual marathons. He ran, some of those were actual marathons. He ran with you know, hundreds of thou, or thousands of other people. But sometimes he just went to the states and ran the, the circuit where the marathon would have been held at another time. That's what he did. So he ran 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. Isn't that crazy? There's another thing. So there's this race called the Relay out in California, and it's 199 miles long. And what they do is it's a relay race. And so you have teams of 12 people that run shifts. Like somebody runs eight miles and then tag, they jump in a van and somebody else gets out and another person runs seven miles and then they get out and the next person comes in, runs five miles, so on and so forth. Dean said, I don't need a team. I'm just going to run the race. And so he runs, he's done this multiple times, he runs the 199 miles straight by himself while everybody else is doing the relay. Kid you not. You can look this up. He has his own website, ultramarathonman.com or something like that. You can, you can find all this on there. This is real stuff. The most miles he's run at one time consecutively was 350 miles without stopping. Can you imagine? Now, doctors have done some tests on him because clearly this is not normal. 
And they have discovered that for whatever reason, his body does not build up lactic acid like ours does. And so it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why he is an amazing runner. Now, you might be saying, well, that was a weird turn here at the end of a message. I get it. Why are we talking about Dean Carnassus when we're supposed to be talking about faith? Well, I have a very, 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 very clear and important point to make. Dean Carnassus did with running what you and I need to do with faith. And that is, when he realized his gift and he gained the confidence to do what he knew he was created to do, he did it immediately without looking back and every single day. Can I just be honest with you for a minute? You know what Christians are really good at? Talking about what we should do. That's what life group is for. We can talk about what we're supposed to do. But doing it, let's not actually do that, but let's talk about it and pray about it. Then we'll feel better about it. Oh, followers of Christ are really good at that. I'm really good at that. Let's talk about all the things that we should do. And we hear a message or we hear somebody share from their, their story in a life group or something like that, and then we're like, wow, mm, I, I got this, this unction, this, this motivation, this conviction that God wants me to do this. And then we talk about it and we share it with our friend and we're like, can you pray for me and so I can see how to do that? And, and then we never do it. Anybody else in that boat? I've got... It's a list. It's a list of things. I was reminded of the list this week, as you would imagine, and I was trying to prepare this one. What if we were more like Dean Carnassus and we woke up one day and realized our faith in God, our confidence in God could lead us to do amazing things, things that would change the world, change the people around us, change your own life, and would make you, would, would push out depression, would push out addiction, would push out problems, would push out all those things. Are you going to live a perfect life because you have that confidence and faith? No. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did they have a perfect life? Were they scared? Were they almost killed? Yes, they were. But they were living in their faith And they were following God and they were chasing after God because they had confidence. They trusted that God knew better than them and that they need to follow him wherever he went. What would it look like if we were like Dean Carnassus and we ran after our faith with no other barriers and we just said, whatever it is, I'm with God. Could we run 350 miles? Do you want to? I don't, but I'm not Dean Carnassus. I wasn't called to run 350 miles. He was, I'm not. The question I have for you today is this. You have faith. You have confidence in God. You trust, you believe God. You believe God is real. You believe God loves you and wants the best for your life. That's good. But the question I have for you, and I... I really want you to think about this. What are you going to do with your faith? What are you going to do with it? Because if it's just something you believe, but you never take any action on it, these are not my words. It's useless. It's useless. 
It's useless. Will you do something with your faith, with that confidence that you have in Christ, in God? I believe that if our church, which means you, all of us, would release the confidence and the trust and the conviction that we have from God, if we were to release it and act on it, I believe people would start talking about our church not because we grew in size, but because God was doing such amazing things that nobody thought possible in this community. That's what I long for. That's what I pray for. That's what I hope for. It's a group of people who have not only the confidence in God, but the confidence to go and live it out and take it to everybody that is in their life already. So what will you do with your faith? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for giving us the opportunity to trust you to not just believe in you, but to have confidence, conviction, the ability to to know that you are good and that you're powerful and that you have stories in store for us. Each one of us, not just pastors, not just people who are on staff at a church, but every single person on the planet, if they would give themselves to you, you have amazing plans, amazing things for them to do. You just need us to be willing to release, to stop being uh, held back by fear or doubt or anything else that goes with those things. God, you have called us to live our life overtly, not hidden. God, what are you calling us to do? Who are you calling us to be? Help us to lean in to our faith and to take action. Because none of us, I don't think any of us in here wants our faith to be useless. We want it to mean something. We want it to matter. We want it to cause and impact change with those around us. We pray this and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?